Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The world can be a mysterious place. It can also be a boring place, so let's focus on the mysterious. Rusty Hinges is a podcast that explores mysteries, hoaxes, natural phenomena, and weird history. Basically, anything that's a bit, well, hinky. Season 1 topics include the tale of Clarence Roberts, a man who died more than once. And then there is the maybe kidnapping of June Robles, the sun that danced in the sky over Portugal, and an unsolved murder on the high seas. Rusty Hinges is generally skeptical, but never dismissive. Well, (laughs) usually not dismissive. You can find Rusty Hinges on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's Rusty Hinges. R-U-S-T. You know what? I have faith in your spelling abilities, so go and subscribe to Rusty Hinges and maybe you'll solve a mystery. Probably not, but you know, you never know. Welcome back to another episode of Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who listened to the last episode. It had been so long since I put an episode out, I wasn't really sure what to expect. So I just wanted to say a thank you to everyone for their support and all the feedback that I've received. But besides that, we're just going to jump right into this episode. This week covers the murder of Stephanie Crow and the highly scrutinized investigation that further traumatized the Crow family. Escondido, California is an inland town in the northern part of San Diego County. Lying in a valley 18 miles east of the coast, Escondido's location allows for hotter summers and cooler winters, which were perfect for the numerous farms that started popping up in the early 1900s. Escondido stayed as primarily a farming community until the mid-20th century. Starting in the 1960s, farmland started to be parceled off and sold to developers. As new neighborhoods started going up, Escondido's population began rapidly expanding. 17,000 residents in 1960 ballooned to over 110,000 by the 1990s as families started leaving the metropolitan area of San Diego in favor of the slowed-down pace of the suburbs. 
Today, Escondido is a city that anchors North County along State Route 78 with the cities of Vista, San Marcos, and Oceanside. Many cities and towns in North County are known for their wealth and high property values, but Escondido is much more of a modest middle-class community. Violent crime is rare in Escondido, and murder is even more uncommon. Most years, you can count the total on one hand. This story begins in January 1998 with the Crow family, who lived in one of the many sprawling suburban neighborhoods. The Crows were a working-class family. Steve and Cheryl had built a comfortable life for themselves and their three children. Steve and Cheryl had been together since high school and married since the early 80s. They had three children, a son named Michael, followed by Stephanie, and a couple years after that, another daughter named Shannon. The investigation would later reveal that January 20th, 1998, was a fairly unremarkable night. It was a Tuesday, and the kids were all home doing homework, watching TV, and just making their way through the school week before they could enjoy the weekend. The family, plus Judith, the children's grandmother, were all in bed by 10 p.m. Twelve-year-old Stephanie was friendly and smart. She was a typical 7th grader, one that chatted on the phone with her friends until the late evening, and January 20th was no exception. Stephanie also loved to go to church and volunteered at the Escondido Library. No one had a cross or negative word to say about her. She was a good kid with a good heart who was just beginning to show the world what she had to offer. After she finished her homework that Tuesday, she and her siblings and her grandmother watched TV. Michael and Stephanie were close, and they were only two years apart. According to their grandmother, the two were chatting through the TV show that they were watching so much that their younger sister Shannon left to finish the program in another room. Cheryl's brother had been visiting the family and left around 9 p.m. He exited the house through the side door that goes through their laundry room. Around 9.30 p.m., the family started going to bed. Stephanie stopped by her parents' room to say goodnight. Her dad was already asleep, but Stephanie told her mom that she loved her and closed the bedroom door behind her. The house was completely quiet by 10 p.m. The next morning, an alarm went off, and when no one hit snooze, Judith was the first to get out of bed to turn off the alarm. She exited the room she shared with Shannon and headed towards the beeping that was coming from Stephanie's room. She expected to be greeted by a sleepy 12-year-old reluctant to start the day. Instead, Judith found the bedroom door ajar, and on the floor between the bed and the doorway was Stephanie. Judith yelled through the open door to the master bedroom for Steve and Cheryl to come quick, that Stephanie was on the floor and that she was covered in mud. Steve rushed to his daughter's bedroom to find that his daughter was not covered in mud, but she was actually covered in blood. The rest of the family rushed to the sound of the commotion, but nothing could be done. Stephanie was dead. The paramedics were at the house within minutes, and detectives had an investigation underway within an hour. In the chaos of that morning, one thing stuck out to Steve. When he ran outside to meet the paramedics as they pulled up to the house, he went through the laundry room door, the same door that his brother-in-law left through the night before. When Steve reached the door, he noticed not only was the deadbolt unlocked, but the bottom lock was unlocked as well. Stephanie had been stabbed nine times, and two of the stab wounds were considered to be fatal. She was still wearing the clothes that she had worn the night before. There were slash marks on her bedding, and it appeared that she was attacked while she was in her bed, 
and tried unsuccessfully to make it to her bedroom door. She had been dead for at least six hours before she was found just after 6 a.m. This puts her time of death at no later than midnight. With her family saying their goodnights just before 10 p.m., this gave detectives a two-hour window of time that the attack probably took place. Despite the apparent stab wounds, there were no weapons left behind in the home. The family said they did not hear anything unusual that night. Furthermore, it did not appear anyone had forced their way into the home. However, there was some evidence left behind. Hairs in Stephanie's hand suggested that she fought her attacker, and there were also twigs from outside in her room. There were three unlocked access points in the home. First was the laundry room door, and second was the window to Stephanie's room. The window was unlocked, but the screen was still in place. The other unlocked entry was the sliding glass door that goes from the master bedroom to the backyard. Investigators believed that both access points were not likely to have been used by an outside intruder. The window screen in Stephanie's room was in place and didn't appear to have been tampered with, and the sliding door would have taken the killer through the bedroom past Steve and Cheryl. Police turned the investigation inward. Considering most murders are committed by someone known to the victim, and there didn't seem to be forced entry into the house, the Crow family was suddenly under a microscope. The investigation began on the Crow's living room couch. With renewed focus, detectives began to piece together the last 24 hours. The family recounted the events of their Tuesday night, homework, TV time, and their good nights before going to bed. Cheryl mentioned that she heard the bedroom door slightly open a couple of times during the night, but she assumed that it was their cat. She also said she thought she heard knocking on a wall, but it did not disturb her enough to investigate the source of the noise. 14-year-old Michael said that he thought he heard someone knocking on the laundry room door, but it stopped so he didn't think anything of it and didn't get out of bed. Michael also mentioned that he went to the kitchen early in the morning, around 4.30 a.m., to get water and an Advil, but he didn't notice anything out of place. Police found it odd considering his room was directly across from Stephanie's, and he said that he didn't see her body in the doorway. Michael countered that it was dark in the house and he was half awake. He had been homesick the day before, which is probably why he was out of bed getting Advil early in the morning. As more investigators arrived on the scene and the investigation expanded, detectives opted to move their interviews down to the police station. The house was sealed off as a crime scene, and the Crow family was not allowed back for over a week and a half. Once the family was taken to the police station, they were all separated. They were strip-searched and their belongings were confiscated. Then they were photographed for evidence of scratching or bruising that could have resulted from a struggle with Stephanie. Steve Crow was the initial main suspect, but as soon as detectives questioned him, he was ruled out. Each family member was also questioned individually, including Shannon and Michael, who were minors at the time. They also did not have their parent present. After the long day of stressful interrogations, answering endless questions, and trying to process the tragedy of losing Stephanie, the Crow family just wanted to go home. Or at least they wanted to go to a hotel, since their house was still an active crime scene. But the Escondido police were not ready to release the family just yet 
Steve and Cheryl were informed that the Escondido Police Department thought it would be best for the children to be separated and put in protective custody. Investigators told them that Shannon and Michael were going to be taken to a shelter while the investigation continued, and this sent the grieving parents over the edge. Steve was livid that the investigators would have the nerve to keep their heartbroken and traumatized family separated. Not only that, but the kids would be headed to a shelter, unfamiliar to them, with adults that they didn't know. Steve demanded that Shannon and Michael be returned to them so they could leave together as a family. But in response to Steve's yelling, the police told him that he would no longer be allowed to say goodbye to his children. Cheryl was given access, and the children were understandably scared and pleaded with their mother to take them with her. She told them that they had to be strong and they had to be brave, and then they were separated by the police. The children were taken to a youth shelter that housed neglected children in San Diego County. Cheryl, Michael, and Judith were given loner clothes since their clothes had been entered into evidence. Police officers dropped them off at a local hotel, and the three waited out the night before they could see the children again. However, the crows were barred from seeing their children for over 48 hours. And while at the youth shelter, Shannon and Michael were inconsolable. Their repeated requests to see or talk to their parents were denied. Michael and Shannon were even separated from each other several times while detectives took Michael away to question him. His parents were unaware at the time that Michael was being questioned while he was at the youth shelter, and he also did not have a lawyer present while he was being questioned. Michael was not just being questioned, though. He was being treated as the prime suspect in the murder of his sister. Three days after Stephanie's murder, the Crows got a call from the Escondido Police Department informing them that Michael had been arrested and charged with Stephanie's murder and that they were free to pick Shannon up from the youth shelter. Michael was questioned four separate times for hours each interview. Sometimes, he sat in the interview chair for over six hours at a time. The first time he was questioned, he was at the police station after he and his family had left their house. This is where he went into detail about getting up at 4.30 a.m. for an Advil and passing by Stephanie's body without seeing it in the dark. At the time of the first interview, investigators said Michael's demeanor gave them pause. The rest of the family was visibly upset. However, Michael was, in their words, distant and preoccupied. His behavior was in stark contrast to the rest of the family, and detectives were already leaning on the idea that the murder was committed by someone living in the house. In his second interview, Michael was taken from the youth center back to the police station, where he reiterated a similar story to the one he had told the day before. He went to the kitchen at 4.30 a.m., and since it was dark, he did not see Stephanie's body lying in the doorway. He went back to bed and was awakened a couple hours later by his family who had discovered Stephanie's body. Though this interview was different than the first, the aloof Michael was gone and he was quite emotional in his second interview. It was almost as if his grief was delayed and hitting him now, and he was experiencing the sadness over losing his sister, who he loved, and the anger that he had for whoever killed her. While the police were conducting their second interview, they made a call to the police station in the nearby town of Oceanside. Escondido Police Department was inquiring about a computer voice stress analyzer 
and the Oceanside Police Department had officers who were trained to use it. That same day, Oceanside sent over an officer, Detective Christopher McDonough, and a computer voice stress analyzer, also known as a CVSA. Voice stress analysis was created to measure deception based on the stress in a person's voice. When a person is questioned, the answers are recorded into a microphone, and based on the frequency of their voice, the software is allegedly able to gauge the stress level of the person speaking. If the person's recording is reading as stressed, then it is supposedly indicative that they are being deceptive in their responses. Obviously, this measurement is not without its criticisms. Many issues with voice stress analysis are similar to the issues with polygraph tests. Independent testing of the methods used in voice stress analysis have shown that in many cases, it is no better at predicting accurate test results than just guessing whether or not someone is lying. Some places recommend that CVSA only be used as an interrogation tool and the results should not be used to assess truthfulness. This means that asking someone to take a CVSA should be used to apply pressure to a suspect to see whether or not they are willing to participate in an interview that could potentially clear them of suspicion. The actual results of the test are not reliable. Even though CVSA is widely considered to be pseudoscience, it was heavily relied on in Michael's interrogation. During his second interview, Michael told authorities the same story that he had told them before. Three hours in, detectives asked if Michael would be willing to take a truth verification exam, and Michael agreed but expressed doubts in the detective's motives. Transcripts from his interrogation later show him saying, I feel like I've spent all day away from my family, and I couldn't see them, and I feel like I'm being treated like I killed my sister, and I didn't. It feels horrible like I'm being blamed for it. Everything I own is gone. Everything I have is gone. You won't let me see my parents, and this is horrible. Then Detective McDonough entered the room and administered the CVSA. He asked Michael to recount the story yet again, and this time detectives were monitoring his voice. After Michael told the same story for the third time, McDonough informed him that the test showed that he was being deceptive in some of his answers. Then McDonough took it a step further and asked Michael if it was possible that he was blocking something out. He said maybe there were things that Michael didn't want to remember, like maybe he did not want to remember that he had killed his sister. And this is the first time it was suggested that Michael may be blocking out memories and that he should think about whether or not there was something that he needed to confess to. Michael denied that he needed to confess anything. His story stayed consistent, and he repeatedly told detectives that he was very tired and very stressed out. The original detective came back into the room and dropped a bombshell on Michael. He said investigators found Stephanie's blood in his room, and there were fingerprints in the blood, and testing showed that these fingerprints belonged to Michael. He also said this evidence led detectives to believe that they had identified Stephanie's killer and that he was sitting right in front of them. In reality, the detectives had not found any blood or fingerprints in Michael's room. 
Lying to a suspect during an interrogation is controversial but legal in the United States. Nevertheless, Michael began to panic, and this is exactly what detectives wanted. He said again that he did not kill Stephanie, but detectives switched their approach from accusatory to helpful. They said there was no way around the evidence they have before them, but they didn't think that Michael was a bad person, and they wanted to help him. But Michael was going to need to help the detectives out first. Detectives needed Michael to help them piece together the events of that night. One detective said, We can't bring her back, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can do the right thing by Stephanie's name and by yourself and by your parents. Okay, now there's a couple things we need your help with, and you're the only one that's going to be able to help us. What I'd like you to do right off the bat, rather than put our team through any more, can you tell me what you think you did with the knife? At this point, Michael becomes extremely upset, and he continues to deny that he had anything to do with Stephanie's murder. When the detectives insisted that he had to have committed the murder and just blocked the memory out, Michael asked through tears how it was possible that he could have done something so awful but have no memory of it. This third interview was the turning point in the investigation and dictated how investigators continued to build their case. Michael held strong in his belief that he didn't kill his sister, and his story didn't change until the fake blood evidence in his room was presented to him. That, combined with the trauma of losing his sister, the lack of sleep, and the detectives telling him that he must have blocked out memories, let a confused Michael allow detectives to continue to make suggestions about how the events of the murder unfolded. After detectives asked Michael to help them piece the events together, the third interview ended. The next day, January 23, 1998, just three days after the murder, Michael was interviewed for a fourth time for over six hours. Once again, detectives tried to get Michael to confess to Stephanie's murder by telling him that they had found blood evidence in his room. Just like the previous interviews, Michael's story didn't change. It seems like the progress detectives thought they had made in the third interview didn't stick. But then detectives switched tactics. They told Michael that they wanted to play a game where the detectives would mention a piece of evidence and Michael would fill in the blanks with an explanation of what happened. There was a rule, though. Michael was not allowed to answer, I don't know, to any of the detectives' questions. The detectives began pushing for information. If Michael said, I don't know, they pushed harder. Michael started responding with, You're asking me things that I don't have the answers to. And would you like me to make something up? Would that make you happy? Do you want me to lie to you? The detectives and Michael went back and forth for a while. They would ask Michael to fill in the details, and Michael would refuse to answer, insisting that he didn't know the details, no matter how many times the investigators asked. The detectives continued to insist Michael killed Stephanie, and that he just simply did not remember doing it. This went on and on until one of the detectives suggested that maybe the reason Michael didn't know what happened was because there were two Michaels. One Michael, the Michael who was talking to them in the interrogation room, was the good Michael. But there was also another Michael, a bad Michael, that committed this horrible crime. 
Good Michael, the police said, would never hurt his sister, and Michael is good Michael the majority of the time. However, bad Michael acted on long-harbored resentments towards his sister, and even if good Michael didn't remember bad Michael's actions, good Michael was going to be held accountable in the eyes of the law. Another portion of the transcribed interview showed the detective talking to Michael, saying, Everybody understands what's been going on. I know that people will be able to forgive Michael. I know that the good part of Michael didn't do this. The good part is the part that helps her with her math. And I'm not real sure how familiar you are with the system, but kind of the way it works is if the system has to prove it, you're going to jail. If they don't, then they help you. That puts us in a position of basically you have two roads to go down. Which one are we going to go down? What I'm really afraid is that we're going to go down the make the system prove it path. And I know you're smart enough to know that that can be done quite easily. The pressure from the detectives and the suggestion that the memory of the murder was blocked out started to crack Michael's confidence. At this point, he had been interrogated on four occasions for hours at a time. He had not seen his parents, grandmother, or sister since they were separated days earlier. Michael then said, I'm afraid that there is someone else inside of me. I don't know who they are, I don't know what they do, and I don't know if what you're saying is true. If so, there is another person inside of me because I don't remember any of this. And if I told you right now, I would be lying. You'd find out eventually, but my story is going to be wrong. Detectives continued to insist that if Michael told them what happened now, they could help him. If he continued to say that he did not remember, then he would be at the mercy of the criminal justice system and surely face prison time. Eventually, Michael agreed to play the detective's game. He told them that he would tell them a story, but he insisted from the beginning that this story was a lie. He told detectives, with heavily leading suggestions from them, that he was jealous of Stephanie because she was outgoing and popular. According to this new story, Michael didn't like that Stephanie was friends with the popular girls in his grade when he was not. He said that it was this jealousy that led him to murder her. When pressed for details about how he murdered her and how many times he stabbed her, Michael's answers didn't align with the facts of the case. Michael said he stabbed Stephanie maybe three times, and the autopsy showed that she was actually stabbed nine times. The last thing Michael said before the final interview was over was, Like I said, the only way I know I did this is because she's dead, and because the evidence you say you have says I did it. You could find someone else did it, and I pray to God you do, but I think it's too late for that. Maybe I did do it. Michael was then Mirandized and arrested. Detectives called Steve and Cheryl to inform them that just three days after Stephanie's murder, they had arrested Michael. While initially shocked that Michael was arrested, Steve and Cheryl visited their son in jail. After speaking with him and hearing about the interrogations, they left believing that the police had made a mistake and their son didn't kill Stephanie. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Michael was a pretty normal, if not slightly introverted, teenager, and this did contrast with Stephanie's more outgoing personality. While Stephanie participated in all sorts of extracurriculars, Michael was just fine hanging out with his friends and playing video games. Despite being a fairly typical kid, detectives began to look for evidence to support the theory that Michael had a darker side to him. In the three days between Stephanie's murder and Michael's arrest, investigators also interviewed two of Michael's best friends, Aaron and Joshua. The boys were close and all in the ninth grade at Orange Glen High School. It was here that detectives would claim during their lunch breaks in the months leading up to her death, the boys plotted Stephanie's murder. The first time police talked to Aaron, he was sitting in the living room at his house. It was January 22nd, just two days after the murder. Of course, he had heard the news by this point, so when he opened the door to find police on his front step, he was not entirely surprised. Aaron told them that his parents weren't home, and they replied that was fine because they were actually there to speak to him. Aaron let them in, and the police interviewed him for just under an hour, mainly asking questions about his friendship with Michael. Aaron's second interview with the police took place at the station on January 27th. Michael had been arrested four days previously, and the two-hour-long interview mainly centered around Aaron's thoughts and opinions on Michael's relationship with his family. He was one of Michael's best friends, after all, so police tried to glean as much as they could about Michael's state of mind. Aaron was asked about Michael's temper and if he thought that Michael would act out violently towards his family. Aaron said no, he didn't think that Michael would hurt his family, and when asked point-blank if Michael could have killed Stephanie, again Aaron said no, he didn't think that Michael could do something like that. Before the interview, Aaron mentioned one thing to investigators. He said he did notice that a knife that he owned had gone missing. He didn't know how long it had been missing, and he had only noticed that it was gone that day. Detectives took note of that and let Aaron go home to his parents. While some of the investigators on Stephanie's case were visiting Aaron's house on January 22nd, police showed up on Joshua's doorstep as well. His parents weren't home at the time either, but Joshua agreed to let them inside and answered their questions about his friendship with Michael for an hour. During the interrogation, there was a knife on the couch. Joshua claimed that the knife belonged to his brother, and when his brother was asked who the knife belonged to, he said that it belonged to Joshua. Fast forward to January 27th. Aaron had just been sent home from his second interview at the police department. 
When he mentioned that he was missing a knife, this piqued detectives' interests. And by piqued their interest, I mean that the detectives obtained a search warrant for Joshua's house and executed it on the same afternoon to try and recover the knife. They found the knife, and it matched the description of Aaron's missing knife. At 7 p.m. that evening, Joshua's second interview began, and he was questioned for the next 14 hours. He was questioned through the night and into the early morning. During this interview, detectives came at Joshua hard and used the same tactics that they used during Michael's interrogation. Detectives claimed that they had evidence that showed that Joshua and Aaron helped Michael kill Stephanie, and now Joshua had a choice. He could help detectives piece together the story, or he would be at the mercy of the criminal justice system. Joshua also agreed to take a CVSA test with Detective McDonough. Although the test was administered at 3 a.m., eight hours into the interrogation, and after several requests for sleep were denied. Towards the end of the interview, Joshua broke down and finally agreed to the story that was laid out by him by the detectives, and he told them what they wanted to hear. He said that the knife was given to him by Aaron and that they had used it to kill Stephanie. After that admission, Joshua was informed by McDonough that he had passed the CVSA test and that his answers were not deceptive. He was then released back to his parents. A few days later, on the 31st, detectives convinced Joshua to call Aaron on a recorded line and try to get him to confess to his involvement. Joshua complied, but Aaron steadfastly denied that he was involved or that the events of the night took place the way that Joshua was claiming that they did. Then on February 10th, Joshua was interrogated again, this time for 12 hours. This entire interview was centered around getting Joshua to confess to a more detailed account of the murder. Joshua eventually broke down and agreed to the timeline of the events the detectives laid out to him, much similarly to the way that Michael broke down during his interrogation. Joshua said that the knife belonged to Aaron and that the three boys planned to kill Stephanie. On the night of January 20th, they carried out their plan. However, like Michael, the vague details Joshua provided did not match with the facts that the detectives had from their crime scene analysis. In the end, the validity of the confession was pushed aside, and Joshua's interview ended with an arrest. The arrest was the first time that he was properly Mirandized and informed of his rights. But it didn't matter because the detectives had already led Joshua to confess to their theory of the crime, giving them more than enough information to build their case. The next morning, February 11th, Aaron was at school when the police entered the campus and searched his locker. At the same time, another team was serving a search warrant at his home. Aaron was pulled out of class, arrested, and taken to the police station. He spent the next nine hours being interrogated. The statements made by Joshua and Michael were presented to him, and he denied that they were true. When detectives got nowhere, they brought out the CVSA and began Aaron's test. McDonough asked Aaron to walk him, theoretically, through how he would kill Stephanie and conceal evidence as to not get caught. 
Then McDonough asked Aaron to describe how he believed Michael and then Joshua would individually commit the murder. Throughout the story, McDonough made leading statements to guide Aaron's story. He asked things like, would you wear gloves? How would you get inside? And what would you do with your bloody clothes? Not getting much from Aaron's hypothetical recounting of the events, McDonough dropped another bombshell on him. He told Aaron that Joshua and Michael had implicated him in Stephanie's murder. Aaron denied all of it. McDonough told him that the CVSA indicated that the statement Aaron made denying the murder was deceptive. At this point, Aaron started to get upset and further reaffirmed that he had nothing to do with Stephanie's murder. Detectives countered that they had physical evidence against all three of the boys. Then they told Aaron it would be easier for everyone involved if he would just confess. The detective told him, A jury has a real difficult time convicting people of crimes of this nature. Why? Because they don't want to believe that a person would do this. So what they do is they deny the evidence, and then when they finally look at the evidence, they say, good grief, how could he possibly sit here and say he didn't do it? Because look at all the evidence that we have. We have this evidence, and we have this evidence. Now they want an apology. They want someone who is willing to accept what has occurred, and you have two ways to go. You can force me to make you live with your denial, which I will do. No problem at all. Or you can put me in a position where I can write on a piece of paper, we have a 15-year-old man here who made a very serious mistake, and now he's willing to talk me through it, and he's willing to try to fix it. Aaron maintained that he did not have anything to do with the murder. When police realized they were not going to get anywhere, they stopped the interview, and then Aaron was read his Miranda rights for the first time and arrested. The three boys were indicted on individual counts of murder and conspiracy to commit a crime. They were held in jail awaiting trial for over six months. According to the prosecution's theory, the three boys spent their lunch hours at Orange Glen High School planning how they would murder Stephanie and get away with it. They allegedly had been planning the murder as far back as early November 1997. There were also allegations that Michael did research on police investigations to try and figure out what techniques would be used by law enforcement to solve Stephanie's murder. Investigators said he did this research to try and get ahead of law enforcement and thwart their investigation. On the night of January 20th, the prosecution claimed that Aaron called Joshua and told him to come over to his house. Both wearing dark clothes and gloves, they then walked together to Michael's house, where he let them in after everyone went to bed. Then they covered Stephanie's face with her bedspread, and Michael stabbed Stephanie. Then Aaron took the knife and stabbed her again before rinsing it off in the bathroom sink. Joshua and Aaron left the Crow house and returned to their homes. Aaron cleaned the knife again and gave it to Joshua and told him to get rid of it. According to the prosecution, Joshua never followed through, and that is why investigators saw the knife on the couch during his first interview. They also said Michael made up the story about getting Tylenol at 4.30 in the morning to purposefully mislead the detectives. The prosecution aimed to paint a picture of three teenagers who conspired together to not only murder, 
but took precautions not to get caught, and that these boys were criminal masterminds who were trying to get away with murder. The prosecution's case is fairly straightforward, and it includes participation from all three of the boys. While they believed the case was going to be open and shut, the pre-trial evidentiary hearing in mid-December of 1998 would throw a wrench into the otherwise simple theory of the crime. During that hearing, Judge John Thompson threw out several pieces of the three boys' interviews because the techniques used and the procedures followed by law enforcement were not admissible in court. Aaron's interviews were all deemed inadmissible because Aaron was clearly a target of the investigation and the detectives had used the other boys' statements to design their interview tactics against Aaron. It was determined that he should have been properly Mirandized and aware of his rights before being questioned, and police failed to do that. The prosecution countered and tried to use Aaron's CVSA waiver form as an advisement of his rights, but the judge disagreed. Much of Michael's confession was also thrown out. Anything that was not Mirandized and anything that he confessed to under the detective's offer of leniency was also scrutinized. Judge Thompson ruled that a confession given in exchange for promised preferential treatment is coercive and cannot be used. This ruling excluded most of his interviews. However, Michael did have a Mirandized confession on record. Joshua's interviews were treated similarly to Michael's. His interviews were suppressed, but his Mirandized confession was allowed to be used during trial. At this point, all of the boys had entered pleas of not guilty. Joshua and Michael recanted their confessions, claiming they were coerced by the detectives. Judge Thompson also remarked on the case, saying, I am not convinced these three gentlemen are the geniuses that are portrayed by the prosecution. However, they are also not the unsophisticated and unknowing children portrayed by the defense. The trials were scheduled to start in January 1999, nearly a year after Stephanie's murder. Publicly, the trial seemed to be forging ahead as planned, but behind the scenes, trouble was brewing for the prosecution. They had already had so much of their evidence thrown out due to bad police interview techniques, but that ended up being the least of their worries. On the night of Stephanie's murder, several calls were made to the police to report a man who was behaving bizarrely in the neighborhood. The man appeared to be homeless and had tried to enter several homes on and around the block where the crows lived. He knocked on several more doors, claiming to be looking for a woman named Tracy. This man was known to police, and he was detained for questioning on January 21, 1998. At the time, police confiscated his two shirts he was wearing and questioned him about his activities in the area from the night before. The man was quickly released due to law enforcement's theory that the murder was an inside job. They had already begun to focus the investigation on Michael, so the man's shirts were entered into evidence along with a DNA sample where they sat untouched in a locker at the Escondido Police Department. In preparation for the trial, the lab went over all of the existing evidence in December of 1998. This included the clothing from the homeless man detained in the neighborhood the day after the murder. 
The shirts both had multiple bloodstains on them, and one bloodstain had been tested in early 1998, and Stephanie's blood type ruled her out. In December of 1998, the lab decided to test all of the bloodstains on the t-shirt and waited for the results. It was determined in January 1999 that while some of the bloodstains were not a match to Stephanie, the bloodstains near the hem of the shirt that were not tested the first time did in fact belong to her. So now mere weeks before the trial was supposed to begin, the prosecution had to explain how Stephanie's blood was on the shirt of a man who she did not know, but her brother and his friends were the ones who were guilty. In light of this new evidence, the charges against Michael, Joshua, and Aaron were dropped in late January 1999, just days before the trial was set to begin. In the weeks leading up to the start of the trial, the district attorney's office had promised the public a quick win in a slam-dunk case. They were then humiliated by the revelation that they had a viable suspect in custody, and due to their own failings while handling the evidence, they released that person without properly investigating him. But while the district attorney's office was suffering from a bruised ego, the Crow family was grappling with a tragedy drawn out by the DA's insistence that their son had murdered their daughter. Not only did they lose their bright, bubbly 12-year-old daughter, their teenage son spent a year facing murder charges and possibly going to prison. Michael and his family spent the year grieving the loss of Stephanie while having to vehemently defend Michael's innocence. The Crow family wasn't the only victim of this sweeping prosecutorial blunder. Aaron and Joshua and their families also spent a year fighting the charges and insisting on their innocence. It's hard to imagine what these families went through and how much they lost just to have the case thrown out because the evidence available to law enforcement was not properly vetted. I'm sure there was relief, but it would be hard not to feel anger towards the situation as well. So who was this mysterious man who was questioned and released by police? In 1998, Richard Raymond Tewitt was 28 years old. A San Diego native and a high school dropout, he had been on the streets since he had left his job in construction. Tewitt's serious meth addiction made it impossible for him to hold down a job. Once on the streets, he started racking up arrests. Many arrests were for nonviolent crimes related to his drug addiction, petty theft, drug possession, and vandalism. Tewitt had also been charged with more serious violent crimes. In 1993, five years before Stephanie's murder, Tewitt was in an altercation with someone at a homeless encampment, and it ended with Tewitt attacking the man with a steak knife and stabbing him repeatedly. Tewitt was arrested and charged, but the charges were dismissed before it went to trial. Tewitt was very familiar with the neighborhood the Crow family lived in. Early in January 1998, Escondido police received several calls that a homeless man was trying to enter residences in the neighborhood. In one instance, Tuit knocked on a door, and before the occupant of the house could open it, Tuit tried the handle and attempted to walk inside. The occupant was able to slam the door shut and lock it, and Tuit asked repeatedly through the closed door if Tracy was home, and said that he was looking for a woman named Tracy. Tuit did know a woman named Tracy, and she did live in this general area. 
Their friendship went back about a decade to the late 1980s when they bonded over their meth use. Tracy eventually moved to the neighborhood where Tuit was now looking for her, but they hadn't been friends since about 1995. That was when Tracy's husband kicked Tuit off their property and told him not to come back. On the night of January 20th, Tuit was in the neighborhood yet again, and he had knocked on several doors and was calling out for Tracy. He went to one home and knocked, and the residents were expecting a friend to arrive any minute, so they told the knocker to just come inside. To their surprise, the knocker was not the person that they expected, and it was Tuit who opened the door and asked if Tracy was there. They said they didn't know a person named Tracy, so Tuit shut the door. They thought Tuit had left when he suddenly reopened the door without knocking and asked if they were sure that Tracy was not there. Tuit did not resist as the occupants shut the door on him and locked it. Tuit moved on to a new house, this time startling the occupants inside of a duplex by pressing his face to the front window. Sheldon Holma grabbed an axe and confronted Tuit outside and asked him what he was doing there. Tuit said that he was looking for Tracy and that he was told that she was probably inside of this house. Sheldon told Tuit to leave and called the police. Sheldon's son and daughter-in-law decided to follow Tuit in their car as to not lose sight of him. Tuit wandered down the road for a bit before walking in circles in the middle of the street with his hands outstretched. Sheldon's son turned the car around and went home and called the police to inform them of the area where they last saw him. Escondido Police Department responded to the call, but by the time they arrived at the location, Tuit was gone. A call came into Escondido Police Department shortly before 10 p.m. when a man called 911 saying someone was trying to enter the trailer where he lived with his family. This was about a quarter of a mile away from the Crow residence. Tuit approached the trailer, banged on it, and demanded to be let in to see Tracy. The man told Tuit that no one named Tracy lived there, and Tuit, who by this point appeared to be intoxicated, continued to demand to see Tracy. The man then confronted Tuit with a pellet gun and told him to leave. The man's neighbor came outside to confront Tuit as well, and Tuit walked backwards facing the men back down the driveway. When he got far enough away, he turned and ran down the road that would lead him right to the Crow House. Escondido police once again responded to the call and followed the road in the direction where Tuit was seen running. The responding officer didn't see anyone, but continued driving up the street and passed by the Crow House. When he drove by the Crow House, the officer noticed that the side door that went to the laundry room was open. The officer pulled into the Crow driveway, and the movement from his patrol car activated the security light near the laundry door. When the light turned on, the side door to the house was closed by someone on the inside. The officer failed to locate to it and closed out the call just minutes after 10 p.m. It is speculated and backed up by circumstantial evidence that the person the police officer saw close the side door to the Crow House was probably to it. There was no reason for the officer to suspect that the door was closed by someone other than an occupant of the house but it is frightening to think of how close the police officer was to potentially catching to it. If he had driven down the street just minutes earlier, this story may have played out differently. 
The Crow's home would possibly be a footnote in a police report as the location of just another charge on Tuit's rap sheet. The morning Stephanie's body was discovered, detectives were informed of the previous night's complaints about the homeless man in the area. Tuit, who was known to law enforcement, was picked out of a lineup by the people who had called the night before. Tuit was located nearby and agreed to go to the station with police. This is when they took his DNA sample and his shirts with the bloodstains on them were bagged into evidence. With no reason to hold him and the developing theory that the murder was an inside job, detectives released to it, and he continued knocking on doors and trying to enter houses looking for Tracy in the neighborhood for the next two months. Then in March 1998, Tuit was admitted into a mental health facility. In April of 1998, the clothing was forensically examined. Tuit had two shirts taken from him at the time of his questioning. There was a red shirt and a white shirt, and the white shirt had several visible blood stains on it. It was determined that these were blood drops and not blood transferred from, say, wiping your hand or transfer from some other surface. The police circled a couple of the stains on the white shirt, and when the shirt went to the lab, only the circled stain was tested. The stain that was tested was the stain that matched to Tuit. There were several stains on the hem of the shirt that were not tested. The lab said that because they weren't circled, they didn't think that the police cared if they were tested or not. When the blood stain matched Stephanie, the DA's office sent the shirt for another round of testing for a second opinion. The independent test showed that the circled stain matched Tuit and the hem stains matched Stephanie. No DNA from any of the boys were found on the shirt at all. The district attorney had no choice but to drop the charges against the boys and start their investigation over with a new suspect. Once the charges against the boys were dropped, the district attorney sat on their evidence, and charges against Tuit would not come for another couple of years. The Escondido Police Department and the district attorney had quite a mess on their hands. The investigation was botched, and key pieces of evidence went untested. The interrogations also drew widespread criticism, as it became obvious that the techniques used coerced false confessions from scared teenagers, and no one was held accountable for the murder of a 12-year-old girl. The district attorney decided that they would recuse themselves from conducting to its trial, Instead, the case was taken over by the California Attorney General's office. In May 2002, nearly four and a half years later, charges were filed against Tuit for the murder of Stephanie Crow. Tuit went on trial in February of 2004. During the lunch break on the first day, Tuit slipped out of his handcuffs. He was in plain clothes because of his court hearing, and he walked out of his holding cell. He then walked down the hall and past the security guards and straight out the front door. Tuit boarded the nearby bus and was gone for hours before being apprehended later that afternoon. After Tuit was recaptured, his trial moved forward. Tuit's defense rested on trying to convince the jury that the actual culprits were Michael, Aaron, and Joshua. 
They relied heavily on the full interrogations to make their case, even though at this point the interrogations were considered to be coerced and untrue. The prosecution presented statements from the three boys that explained why they made statements incriminating themselves. The prosecution relied on the blood evidence on Tewitt's clothing as proof that he killed Stephanie. The defense claimed that the blood evidence was a result of faulty police work and that the transfer happened when police who were at the scene then bagged evidence from Tewitt. According to the defense, Stephanie's blood must have been transferred accidentally by police who didn't follow proper crime scene protocol. Because there were so many issues with the evidence, the validity of the work done by the Escondido Police Department was under a microscope. On May 24, 2004, a jury acquitted Tewitt of the murder charge. Instead, he was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter and got a 13-year sentence with a four-year sentence enhancement for escaping the courthouse on the first day of his trial. Tewitt began his appeals process immediately. Eventually, he was granted a retrial in 2013. His lawyers claimed that all the evidence was circumstantial and the blood evidence could not be proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it didn't come from accidental police transfer. And that was the point that stuck with the jury. Because of their concern that the blood was transferred to his shirt accidentally, they returned a verdict of not guilty. Tewitt walked out of jail in December 2013 with just 10 days of parole. The boys and their families brought lawsuits against the city, the police department, and the police officers who interrogated them. They cited the improper interview techniques as coercive and psychologically abusive. They also claimed that the boys' rights were violated because officers denied them their right to be protected against self-incrimination and that they were detained without being Mirandized. In 2011, Joshua and Aaron settled their lawsuits for undisclosed amounts of money. The Crow family was also awarded financial compensation in the same year. In the years since the murder, the Crows have been vocal about how their daughter's case was mishandled. They have spoken out against people involved with the case, who later went on to run for local political office. In 2012, a judge declared the three boys factually innocent in Stephanie's murder. This is a step beyond being found not guilty at trial. If you were found not guilty, it is still possible that you could have committed the crime. It was just unable to be proved in a court of law. By being declared factually innocent, it was finally and officially put on record that Michael, Aaron, and Joshua did not murder Stephanie. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month level or higher, you can listen to this episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. Your generosity helps make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to let me know what you think of this week's episode. You can find me on social media at MisconductPod. If you have a case you would like to see covered, drop me a line. 
send it over to misconductpodcast at gmail.com. And before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out Rusty Hinges, whose promo I played at the beginning of the episode. And I have one more podcast recommendation for you, True Crime Bullshit, which is a podcast dedicated to the story of Israel Keys. In March of 2012, Israel Keyes was pulled over outside of Lufkin, Texas. And in that moment, hundreds of lives would be forever changed, including mine. Join me on this strange, terrifying, and emotional journey as I attempt to find the missing, understand a killer, explore the impacts of crime, reconcile with those left behind, and subvert the genre of true crime. In the FBI files, they found images of over 40 missing persons on his computers. I think it's fair to say that Israel Keyes had a fetish about missing people, which is why he wanted to ensure that his victims didn't get found. True Crime Bullshit is available now on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcatchers. Go to www.truecrimebullshit.com for more information. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.